0: Thank you, choir. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. and We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 4 today. We're taking sort of a strategic and planned pause in our study of the book of Philippians. Uh, We're going to do this one more time at the end of July, but other than that, we're just going to just keep plowing through. So we'll be in Philippians 2 next week. Uh, But today I want to share with you something that I think God's word has to say about the United States of America, where we are and where God would have us to go. And so there's an interesting historical account in First Samuel chapter four. You, you may not be familiar with it. It's not one of the, you know, the big Old Testament events that you know, we teach in vacation Bible school and that people just seem to know from their children's Bible study days, but it's a very important account and I, I just think it speaks to where we are today. So 1 Samuel chapter four, let's just begin to read. It says, in Samuel's words came to all Israel Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. And so I want to tell you just sort of the setting, this was about 3,100 years ago, about 1060 BC. Uh, The Philippians, the Philippians, the Philistines (laughs) and the Israelites are arrayed in battle As they had been many many times this was a conflict that had gone on for hundreds of years there were times when the Philistines were the were the stronger army and there were times when the Israelites were the stronger army it just seemed to go back and forth and back and forth at this point in history it seemed that the Philistines had the stronger army they had the upper hand now you know at least one Philistine who is the most famous Philistine do you know Goliath Now that happened about two generations after what we're going to read in 1 Samuel chapter 4. About 40 years later, David and Goliath battle out and you know what happened in that story. So this is just a few years, about 40 years prior to that. So let's see what happens as they are arrayed in battle. It says in verse two, the Philistines lined up in battle formation against the Israelites. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And so this is a pretty significant loss for the Israelites. So what are they going to do now? I mean, here they are, the the Philistines are advancing on the nation of Israel. Uh, They obviously have the upper hand. They have the stronger military. Uh, The Israelites had really already given their best defense and they had lost 4,000 soldiers in this one battle. So what are they going to do? Well, in the next verse, they get what they think is a very good idea. Verse three says, when the troops returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, and then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. Now, really, you need to understand what their thinking was. They had been defeated militarily by the Philistines, but they thought if we could go and get the ark of the covenant of the Lord, then we will be victorious in battle. And here's why they thought that. The ark was this piece of furniture. It's not referring to the boat ark. That's a different ark, a different sermon. But this was a, a piece of furniture, a chest that contained some very important religious relics, very important to the Israelites. But more than that, this chest, this piece of furniture, represented the very presence of God. Wherever this piece of furniture was, it seemed that God was there. When they would go to worship God, they would go before this piece of furniture because like I said, it represented the presence of God. And so they got this idea that if we're going to have a battle and we're concerned that we're going to lose, let's take God into the battle. Well, that seems like a pretty good idea, right? I mean, we'd have voted for that. Let's take God into battle. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. We will march it ahead of the armies, and certainly, God will give us victory if we take him into the battle. Well, let's see how that, uh, how that works out. Look at verse four. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. The cherubim refers to, um, to a special kind of angel. And they had on the, on the sides of this chest, they had these uh, uh, statues, really, of these angels in gold. And uh, so they would come up from either side of this piece of furniture. And it was between the cherubim, between these two statues, that they felt the presence of, of God. And so they, they've gone to get this, um, uh, this ark, Um, where God is enthroned between the cherubim. And it says, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now here are three names. You need to know who's who in this story. Eli is the high priest. He is the one who really speaks to God on behalf of the people. You need to understand the difference between a prophet uh, and and a priest. Samuel, at this point, was serving as a prophet. A prophet was someone who spoke God words of God to the people you say the words came from God and they went to the people and it went through a prophet a priest for the most part did the opposite he was the one who stood before God and represented the people So the prophet represents God to the people, the priest represents the people to God. But Eli was the one who would have led them in worship, he was the one who would have offered the sacrifices, prayed the prayers, and so Eli is the high priest, and had been the high priest for a number of years. Now there are two other names in this verse, Hophni and Phinehas, aren't those good names? If you have a couple of sons, don't name them Hophni and Phinehas, you'll see why in a moment. But Hophni and Phinehas were the sons of Eli. Now they're, they're adults now. They're grown up. We're going to meet Phinehas' wife before we get to the end of this chapter. So they're, they're grown young men, but they are the sons of, uh, of the high priest Eli. Now look at verse 5. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. They were so excited. Finally, we're going to put an end to the Philistines because we've brought the Ark of the Covenant. We've brought God, is what they were thinking, to be on our side. Verse 6, the Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? And when the Philistines discovered that the Ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us, nothing like this has ever happened before. So everybody thought this was a good plan. Uh, the, uh, the Israelites thought it was a good plan. Even the Philistines thought it was a good plan. I mean, to their, to their deficit, they thought this. it's hopeless now because God's gonna be on the side of the Israelites. Well, skip down to verse 10. Let's see what happens. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated and each man fled to his own tent. That means they all went home to mama. All right. They're scared to death. I mean, it's a, it's a slaughter. And it says that the slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas died. Nobody saw that coming. They've lost the battle, 30,000 soldiers killed. The Ark, can you imagine this? The very presence of God, in their minds anyway, the very presence of God captured by the enemy. And then the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, both die in battle. Now, I I want you to see what, what happens, because while that seems like the end of the story, it's not. Look down at verse 17. The messenger is going to bring back news uh, to Eli and to the people at headquarters of what has taken place. It says, the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also there was a great slaughter among the people. And Eli, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. And worst of all, really, the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. And then, if we just continue to read, it seems like there's just a postscript to the story. You know how sometimes you might write a letter in the olden days when we actually wrote letters and maybe at the bottom, after you've signed your name, you think of one last little bit that you need to include. Just just something that might add some significance to what you've said. And so you put a little PS and then one or two more sentences. And and that's what we see here uh, in verses 19 through 22. So so notice the postscript. It says, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. This was shocking. I mean, the number of soldiers lost was shocking, Hophni and Phinehas dying, Eli dying. Perhaps the most shocking thing is that, in their mind, God had been captured. And so she gives birth just because of the stress of the moment. Verse 20, as she was dying, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. And she named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the death of her father-in-law and of her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said because the ark of God has been captured. You, you know, it seems when you just look around that there are some things that just lose their glory. You, you know what I mean by glory? Just their significance. There, there, there are times when something will have high significance. It seems like it has all the momentum. It is very successful. And, 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 and just even without anybody anticipating it, it will lose its glory. I am a big college football fan and I hesitate to tell you who I pull for because I I don't want to cause a riot but uh, in 2010 my football team won its last national championship Uh, the Auburn Tigers uh, played in that final game and uh, they came out victorious and the coach at the time Gene Chizik who I understand has attended church at the First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches, probably why he has been so successful uh, for many years. But Gene Chiswick was, um, uh, he was heralded as uh, just a, a, a coaching genius. Uh, he, he won just about every Coach of the Year award. People said that finally uh, Auburn football had eclipsed the University of Alabama as the great football powerhouse of the of the southeast, and and, and so everybody, at least in the state of Alabama, or half the people in the state of Alabama, uh, were very excited because Auburn football, it seemed, had reached this this pinnacle that they had sought after for so many years. But that was 2010. In 2012. They fired Gene Chiswick. and they said that he was a horrible football coach, and he didn't know anything about football, and, and, and he had created such an unhealthy program that he just could not remain. In fact, they paid him millions and millions of dollars to get out of town. You know, sometimes the glory fades, right? Sometimes things can be absolutely on top of the world, but, but something will happen, and, and they just lose their significance. You know, it's not just football teams. Some of you, I've, I've ridden around town with you and you've pointed to some buildings and some industries here, right here in Nacogdoches. And, and you said, pastor, there was, there was a time when that was one of the most successful places in town. There was a time when, when that place was just filled with employees. It was just a hive of activity. It was so successful. And now it's just boarded up and closed down. Things can lose their glory. I, just moved here from heath in newark ohio places i'm sure you've never heard of before but our, our one claim to fame is that we are we were the home of longa burger baskets you ever heard ladies of longa burger baskets and so this is where they make these uh these gift bags, baskets that uh, people all across the country and all across the world have have collected for years and you know just a few years before i moved Uh, to Heath in Newark. In fact, it was 2000, well, the year 2000, Longaberger had 8,272 full-time employees. That's a pretty big business. That year, they sold over $1 billion worth of baskets. Can you imagine? They built a seven-story office building. Have you seen pictures of this? An office building in the shape Of a picnic basket I mean it looks like it's wicker on the outside it's got big handles that go way up in the air people from all over the world even today go to Newark and Heath Ohio to see the seven-story picnic basket but you know when I left when I left a few months ago uh, Longaberger had lost its glory there are less than 50 full-time workers at Longaberger now. They've abandoned the basket. Uh, Somebody else bought it by paying the taxes that were in arrears. And now there's a financial services company that uses a little bit of the building. Longaberger now occupies a uh, metal frame building out away from town where property is cheap. And it's just lost its glory. Things can lose their glory over time. Now, let me tell you three things that can lose the glory that, that are very significant to us that we need to be aware of today number one a country can lose its glory a country a nation can lose its glory in fact uh, history is the study of the rise and fall of nations. I, I think we have some history professors here today, and, and I think they would tell you that, that, that all of history is really a study of how nations will ascend, and they will have glory, they will have success, they will have wealth and influence, and then they will fall, they will lose the glory. And we could look at a lot of them. In fact, the most powerful nation in early Old Testament times was the nation of Egypt, Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the whole known world at the time. We we still marvel at their arts. We still marvel at some of the geometry that they were able to come up with. We marvel at the pyramids that they were able to build. And I know some people think that space aliens built those, uh, and Andre thinks that. but But you know, for most people, they just think because Egypt was such a powerful such a such an intelligent such a wealthy nation they were able to do things that that just that just amaze us even to today but you know who's the well, where's the nation of Egypt today? There, there is a nation of Egypt, but it, it's no longer a dominant world power. It, it's a, it's an unsteady nation at best. It's a, it's an occasional ally to the United States uh, at, at best. It's a, it, it's a nation and they have some, some uh, resources, I, I suppose, but they're not even a major player on the world scene. And so here was a nation which for hundreds of years far surpassed every other nation on earth, but it it lost its glory. You know, during New Testament times, what was the most powerful nation? It was the nation of Rome. Rome conquered all that it knew. In fact, Rome had such, uh, uh, such wealth and such influence and such literature and such organization, administration. Many of our laws and the whole structure of uh, uh, much of the structure of the United States uh, jurisprudence system is based on what they did. Uh, in Rome, even our even our highway system, in some ways, is based on the on the roads of Rome. It, it, it was a nation that had it, it seemed like endless resources and power. But where's the nation of Rome today? Well, there's not a nation. It's a there's a city called Rome that that's that's very different, other than than, than just some old buildings that are falling apart. The the nation of Rome that seemed invincible, the glory has departed. We think of the United States, I think most of us, in such a, uh, we think of it in such a myopic way, such a short-sighted way, we we think of the United States of America as a nation that will never fall. Because for the last hundred years or so, the United States has been a superpower of superpowers and, and we think that this nation will just stand forever that this nation will will never fall, that the glory will never depart. But I want you to know that you can find examples of nations as strong as the United States in a relative sense, as strong as, as wealthy as, as smart as the United States in history as dominant or more dominant than the United States for even longer periods of time, all throughout history, you could find many, many examples of that. And those nations have fallen. Those nations have lost their glory. We see this over and over and over. So let us not assume that the United States of America will never lose its glory if, if, if we We're not wise if we're not careful if we don't chart the right path then we too one day will lose our glory now not only can a nation lose its glory a church can lose its glory now I'm not talking about the church the body of Christ the bride of Christ the Bible says that God will always have his remnant and the gates of hell will not prevail against it certainly but I'm talking about the local church. It can lose its glory. And just because a church is exciting and just because it's successful and, and, and just because things seem to be going well doesn't mean a church cannot lose its glory. i tell you a church that I uh, led me to Christ and a church that I served in as an associate pastor for a while, youth pastor for a while. Uh, New Haven Baptist Church in Anniston, Alabama was... Uh, was a great church back in the 80s. And in fact, I was, uh, Dr. Reed, I was looking in one of the offices back here and I found a couple of Eagle Awards. Do you remember the Eagle Award? And, and First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches was awarded at least two Eagle Awards. I found two Eagle Awards. And back in, the, back in the 80s, that was the mark of one of the most successful churches, one of the most highly successful focused churches churches in America, and uh, so this church, First Baptist Nacogdoches, uh, received that award at least two times, and, and New Haven Baptist Church, the church that, uh, that led me to Christ in Anniston, Alabama, also received that award, and, and it was a church where people all across the state wanted to find out why they did or how they did what they did. It was so successful. It was, it was the model of, 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 an, of, of a solid uh, God-honoring, community-impacting church, but it lost, but over time, it just lost its glory. And today, the church has lost its excitement, it's lost its uh, passion, its attendance has dropped, its ministry's impact has, has stagnated. And we're gonna talk in a moment or two about the reasons, because I want you to see them in this, uh, in this passage that we'll look at um, but suffice it to say right now, a church can lose its glory. I haven't been in contact with that church in a lot of years. I left there well over 30 years ago. But I looked, I looked it up on the internet this week. I thought, I was hopeful that there would be some sign. And you can't always tell by a church's webpage how well it's doing. But I was hoping there would be some sign that the church had uh, had regained some of that glory. But, uh, but I couldn't find any of those signs. In fact, I pulled up a page that showed the leaders, the 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 leaders in the church and there were I don't know six eight ten twelve leaders that were uh, that were listed there and with the exception of the senior pastor who I do not know every other leader in the church current leader in the church is someone that I knew 30 years ago as a leader in the church with the exception of the organist but the new organist is the daughter of the old organist okay which means in 30 plus years, they've not added one single leadership family to the church. See, a, a, a church on top of the world can still lose its glory. There's one more thing I want you to know this, this morning can lose the glory of God, and that's a Christian. A Christian can lose, can lose the glory. I'm not talking about losing your salvation. Uh, what God starts, God finishes. What God does, he does well. But a, but a Christian can can lose lose his, his glory. A, a Christian can. Can lose those high and heady days. Do you, do, can you remember a time when you were walking so close to the Lord that you couldn't wait to pray? That you were that you were in God's Word. That you were studying God's Word. You were passionate about God's Word. Can you remember a time when you wanted to serve God? You wanted to go on a mission trip. Can you remember a time when when you wanted to give and you were excited and passionate about giving? See, there are a lot of Christians today who are in church and they can look back at a time when when their walk with the Lord was glorious. But, but if they were just honest today, they'd have to say that they've lost the glory. A Christian can lose the glory. Well, we think about a country and a church and a Christian definitely there's no debate can, can lose the glory. But our question this morning, and this is what's important is how do they lose their glory? What What causes a country, a Christian, a church to to lose the glory? And and, and so that's what I want us to see. I want us to look back at this story and I I want this historical account to serve as, as a warning to us, as a guide to us so that we will not lose the glory of God. So the first reason the glory departs is this. The glory will depart when sin is tolerated. The glory will depart when sin is tolerated. Now, really, to understand 1 Samuel 4 that we just read a moment ago, you've got to understand 1 Samuel 3, because 1 Samuel 4 is a reaction, it's the consequence to what happened in 1 Samuel 3. So, we won't read the chapter now, you can do that when you get home, but let me just tell you the story. Samuel was living in the household of Eli. Remember, Samuel's the the prophet of God later on as he gets older, in 1 Samuel 3 is just a young man, but he's the prophet of God, Eli is the priest, and so Samuel, had he grew up in the priest's home. Uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, had dedicated her child to God, and so her child just moved in. Now, by the way, it's a good thing, parents, for you to dedicate your children to God. It is a bad thing to drop them off at the preacher's house, okay? I mean, we don't still do it like they did it back then. But uh, Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel just grew up in Eli's house. And one night Samuel was laying in bed and he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel. And so he hops up out of bed. He thinks it's Eli. And so he runs down the hall and he says, Eli, sir, what do you need? And Eli said, I, 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 didn't, I didn't call you. you. You just imagined it. Go back to bed. And so Samuel goes back to bed And he's he's just about to drift off to sleep. And he hears it again, Samuel, Samuel. And so he gets up, he runs back down to Eli's room. And and Eli said, I didn't call you. You must be having a nightmare. Go go back and go to sleep. And so he goes back and same thing. He hears it, Samuel, Samuel. So he goes back to Eli. This, This time Eli figures out something's going on. And he says, Samuel, I think it's God who's calling your name. And so when you go back and you hear that voice again, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And so can you imagine this? Samuel goes back and he lays in his bed. How scared would you be? And he's just waiting for God to speak. And sure enough, he hears it again, Samuel, Samuel. And so he says, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And you know what God tells Samuel? God says, Samuel, I have a message for Eli. Now that's unusual, right? And why didn't he just tell Eli? Well, the implication is that uh, God had something to say, but Eli wasn't listening. So God tells Samuel this very important message. He says, tell Eli that I'm going to judge the nation of Israel because of your terrible sin. Now think about this. God says, Samuel, tell Eli, I'm going to judge the nation because of your Eli's terrible sin. Now what sin was Eli guilty of that, that, that would cause God to judge the nation like we see in first Samuel four. What, what was Eli immoral? Did he have an affair? No, He, he, he was, he was a moral man. He, he, he didn't, he didn't have a problem like that. Well, did Eli steal money from the From the temple, did he he take something that wasn't his? Well, no, there's there's no evidence of that. Eli seemed to be walking a straight and narrow path when it came to those things. So what was Eli's sin that was so terrible that God was gonna judge the whole nation? I'll tell you what it was. Eli had two sons, we've talked about them, Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas were notorious sinners. Hophni and Phinehas... We're guilty of sexual sin, gross sexual sin. Hophni and Phineas did take money from the temple. Hophni and Phineas profaned the things of God in the temple. And, and you know what Eli did about that? You know, you know what dad did when he knew that his sons were sinning so terribly? Everybody knew this. This wasn't a secret to anybody. What did Eli do when his sons were so, so involved in this sin? Nothing. He tolerated their sin. He didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to confront it. I don't know why. Maybe he thought it would be uncomfortable. I don't know why. Maybe he thought he shouldn't judge his sons. I don't know why. Maybe he just didn't want to be responsible and get into the messiness of somebody else's life. But Eli tolerated their sin. And the reason why the nation of Israel was judged was because of the tolerance of sin. It was because Eli refused to deal with the sin that he knew was all around him. Now let's talk about our country. When a country tolerates sin, the glory of God will depart. When a country will turn its back and turn its head or stick its head in the sand and pretend like sin's not happening when sin's all around, that's when the glory departs. And I'm telling you, church, that's what makes me fearful for the United States of America. Not Not that we're guilty of sin, now listen to this, now sin's bad, of course. But the people have been sinning for a long, long time, okay? People have been sinning. They've been doing all kinds of sin for a long time. It's not just the sin. What angers the Lord, what causes the glory to depart, what calls 1 Samuel chapter 4 to be real history is when the sin is tolerated by people. You know, United States of America, since uh, Roe v. Wade 1973, we have aborted 60 million children. Now, listen, as bad as that is, listen, and that is terrible, terrible. But as bad as that is, I I think perhaps what is worse is that more and more it's becoming no big deal. I mean, there was a time when we'd get all upset about that. There's a time when we, you know, we would get just furious about that, when we would go and vote our convictions. There, there was a time when we would make our voices known. But I'm afraid that that time is past. I'm afraid what we're doing now is we're just shrugging our shoulders and saying, it's no big deal. We are tolerating sin. 466,000 babies aborted, so far in 2017 in the united states of america how many of you can remember 9-11 raise your hand i mean most of us old enough that was a pretty big event right but we don't shrug that off that's a pretty big event 9-11 but did you know that a 9-11 sized event happens in abortion clinics every single day in the united states of america I mean, 9-11 is just sort of a blip on the screen. I mean, I'm not saying it's not significant, but I'm saying it pales in comparison to what will happen tomorrow in abortion clinics in America. And you know what? We just, its no big deal. The glory will depart when sin is tolerated. When when we just say, well, that's just a part of life now. That's just a, a precedent. That's just the way things are. No, that's toleration. And, and, and see, I think God is maybe quicker to judge us for how we as Christians have tolerated sin than perhaps he would because lost people are sinning. Here in 1 Samuel 3 and 4, we see that the nation was judged. They lost the glory of God because Eli just shrugged his shoulders It's sin. Homosexuality and the blurring of gender lines. You know, there was a time when that would make us uh, uncomfortable. There was a time when that wasn't funny. Now we watch television shows that make jokes about it and we we laugh and we call it entertainment. There was a time when when where we stood was so clear. And, and, and people were guilty of sin. People have always been guilty of the sin. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to say that that's not significant, but I think the most significant issue here is that it's, it's become normal in our minds. The largest uh, high school club at uh, my girls high school in uh, Granville, Ohio was the Gay and lesbian club, largest largest club in school, and I don't know that everybody in it was uh, was guilty of that sin, but 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 the, but they were advocates of of the sin, and 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 we it's just not a big deal to us anymore. The glory will depart when sin is tolerated. Now it's not just true in a it's not just true in a country; it's true in a church. It's interesting if you want to see this played out in the New Testament, just read the book of 1 Corinthians. And you see a church that had such a great beginning and such great success for a time. But, but you see a church that's just falling apart. When, when you look at the things that Paul addressed the, the people at Corinth, it, it was churches just falling apart. And, and, and so you just search for the reason why. Why did it happen to that church? We need to know because we don't want it to happen to this church. Well, you see that uh, they had sexual sin. They had sexual sin in their church, and, and, and I guess it was just too messy for the church to deal with. I guess just the leaders didn't want the headache. I guess nobody wanted to make somebody else feel uncomfortable, and, and, and so they just didn't deal with it. In fact, you look at the first five chapters of 1 of Corinthians, Paul is, Paul is just uh, weighing into the church. He is, he, 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 he is so upset at the church, primarily because they had just shrugged off the sexual sin, Now listen, there will be sin in the church. I mean we we should pray that there wouldn't be. We should preach, we we should teach, we should encourage and help one another, and we should love each other when people do sin. But 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 we can't as a church just 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 ignore it. We, We can't as a church just allow those things to go on and tolerate sin because that's when the glory departs. There was an abandoning of the Great Commission. In the church of Corinth, they let things become more important than sharing Christ. And they were fine with that. The glory departed. There, there was bitterness. Uh, there was uh, anger in the church. There was gossip in the church at Corinth. So I told you about New Haven Baptist Church. And it's a church that I, I still love. Dear to me, I, I don't know... Um, how I would have come to know Christ were it not for the ministry of New Haven Baptist Church in Anson, Alabama. They, uh, they, they called me, my first full-time ministry position was at that church. And, and, um, and, and, and they, they've been so good to me you know, in that respect. But, but, but you, know, you know what happened? And, and I, just because of my connections there, I, you know, back, back when all this happened, I, I, I knew a lot of what was going on. The, the first thing, I think the first... Um, shoot a drop was, uh, they had a staff member preach a sermon where he denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And, uh, people got the recording of the sermon and sent it to me. I was no longer at the church at the time. And, and he, he did, I mean, he absolutely denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And, and you know what the church did? I mean, that was major theological error and sin. You know what the church did? Nothing. It was a worship pastor. He was popular. He was, uh, um, he, he he, he was good at what he did, and, and they just didn't deal with it. I, I don't know if it was just too messy or too uncomfortable or too political, but, but, you know, that was the beginning of the end. Then they had some major sexual sin happen in the church in leadership, and um, they decided to brush that under the, under the rug. They still have not dealt with it, and, I, I mean, it's still a, a big issue there behind the scenes. And they, just, they, they just tolerated it, and the glory departed. God just took his hands off the church. You know, they had the same preacher. They had the same music. They had the same resources. They were in the same location, but it was a completely different church because God took his hands off of it. They tolerated sin. The glory departed. But I also want you to know that when a Christian tolerates sin, the glory will depart. When the Christian tolerates sin, the glory will depart. None of us this side of heaven are going to be perfect. Perfect. The Bible doesn't say that you will reach perfection. In fact, uh, we see example after example in the, in the New Testament of, uh, of strong believers still struggling with sin. That's, that, that's something God will work on. It's something that, that we need to be serious about. But uh, we'll not reach perfection. You will be guilty of sin. But the question is. What's going to be your attitude toward that sin? Are you going to tolerate it? Are you going to shrug your shoulders and say, well, you know, everybody sins. It's no big deal. It's not as bad as somebody else's sin. Listen, I know some people that sin a whole lot worse than I do, so it's no big deal. Are you going to tolerate sin? Or are, you going to, are you going to confess your sin? Are you you going to be serious about sin? Are you just going to get so so used to living with sin? And see, the reason the glory departs some believers, the reason some people lose all their excitement and their enthusiasm about the Lord is because for for an extended period of time, they just tolerate sin. It's not the sin, so to speak. I mean, sin is bad. We need to deal with sin. But it's, it's the fact that we just learn to live with sin that causes the glory to depart. You ever been in a, in a restaurant, maybe sort of a fine dining restaurant, you know, you're out on a date with your spouse and, and you go early. I always like to go to restaurants early so I don't have to wait in line. So you go to a restaurant and, and so you sit at a table and all the, you know, everything's just normal. The lights are on, but a few minutes into your meal, they dim the lights. Have you ever experienced that? Because I don't know, at like six o'clock or something at fancy restaurants anyway, they, you know, they turn the lights way down to create this atmosphere. Well, if you're sitting there and they dim the lights, it's like, whoa, I can't even, I don't even know what I'm eating. I mean, I can't see. But you know what happens over the next three, four, five minutes? You just get used to it. You don't even think about it, Right. And and, and three or four minutes later, you you don't even recognize that they've dimmed the lights because you've grown used to it. And see, for some of us, we've had sin in our lives, and it, it has startled us. We have been alarmed at our sin. But you know, over time, we've just sort of gotten used to it. And we tolerate sin. And when you tolerate sin, the glory departs. Now, let me tell you another reason why the glory departs. Not only does the glory depart when sin is tolerated, the glory departs when our assurance is false, when our assurance is false. Now l- let's go back to what we see in first Samuel chapter four. The Israelites are, um, are, are looking for something to give them victory. And so they decide that they will put their trust in the Ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now that is different than putting your trust in God. Now, the ark was connected to God in the sense that, that God um, had, had used the ark in, 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 in worship. Uh, the ark was connected to God because God had commanded them to build the ark and God had given them instructions for the ark. The, the ark was a symbol, a very important representation of God, but the ark was not God. And sometimes we put our trust in something that is connected to God instead of putting our trust in God. Now, we could go to other places in Scripture where the Israelites get in a bind, and and you know what they do? Because they're losing a battle, I think about Joshua chapter 7, I believe, or 6, 7, I believe. So they get in a bind, and they lose a battle, and they actually go to God. They get down on their knees, and they confess their sin, and they say, Oh, God, you've got to help us. And they put their trust in God, but they don't do any of that here. What they put their trust in was not God, it was uh, you know, the, this, this religious relic, it, 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 was this, uh, it, it was this symbol of God. Now you might say, well, what, what, why does it matter? Well, it, it does matter. And see, people today, countries, churches, Christians, are putting their trust instead of in their, their passionate walk with God, coming before God every day and seeking God's direction and living in dependence on God. We're putting our assurance in something that's false. So let's talk about our country. When a country puts its assurance in things other than God, the glory departs. Now we have a great military, and I am so thankful for the men and women who have sacrificed for those who stood earlier and those who couldn't be here to stand because they have given their lives. We need to be thankful. And I'm thankful that every day people continue to to, to join the military and, and fight for our freedom. And we have a great military. But listen, we don't have the glory of God. We've not been successful as a nation primarily because of our great military. We have a lot of wealth. We, we, we have great wealth in our country, but, but, but we're not blessed because of our wealth. We have, we have good leaders, but we're not blessed because of our leaders. America is great to the extent that it is great because of the blessing of God. It is God who has given us our freedom. It is God who has given us our resources. It is God who has blessed our nation. And if we put our assurance in our strong military or we put our assurance in some elected leader or we put our assurance in, in our resources i'm telling you we've put our assurance in something other than god we're like the israelites saying that as long as we bring the furniture that has god's name on it we'll be victorious no we must put our assurance in god i remember several years ago uh, uh, we were on a family vacation in Myrtle Beach, uh, South Carolina. It was before Ray was a part of our family. I don't remember how many years ago this was, but we, um, we'd gone out to the beach and we'd set up our chairs and uh, it was low tide. And so we had set up our chairs, you know, just a, just a few feet from the, from the water. And um, we were enjoying the day. Well, the tide begins to come in and it's getting closer and closer. We didn't want to move our chairs. And this was, I mean, we knew we would, not be successful in this, but it was fun and we were playing around. And, and so we decided we would just, uh, all four of us would just, you know, build a sand wall to hold back the tide. Okay. So we, we were working at this, uh, feverishly. In fact, people were stopping to watch the weirdos from Ohio trying to, <laughs> trying to stop the tide but but we were piling up sand and you know some you know the water wave would come and it would go a little over you know one of our little sand walls and then we would put more sand to shore it up and and we had the best time you're know, trying to fight back the tide but i mean you know the end of the story the water won right now listen in America, we can have a great military and a great leader and great resources and a great ingenuity and great workers and great lots of things, but we will lose the battle unless our assurance is in God, unless as a nation we seek God. Rome had greater resources and power relative in their time than we do. Egypt had greater superiority in their time, relatively, than we do. Our only hope is God. When a church puts its assurance in things other than God, the glory departs. You know, our assurance can't be in our history. Are you listening? Our church has a great history. Have you read the book? Thank you, Mr. Parton. Have you read the book? Right? And and a lot of you, you've lived the history. You're in the book. We have a great heritage. But our church will not be great next year because it was great last year. You see, if the church puts its assurance in things that are false, in something other than God, the glory will depart. We can't put our assurance in history. We can't put it in our property. We can't put it in a preacher, a pastor, a staff member. Uh, the Old Testament says it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As a church, we must come humbly before God every day and say, how can we honor you more and serve you better? That's, that's why, that's how the glory will remain. When a Christian puts his assurance in the things other than the glory of God, uh, the glory departs. Uh, I am, I hear lots of people when I ask them about their walk with the Lord answer by saying, well, I've been a member of the church for 43 years, or I was baptized in uh, 2003, or I read my Bible every day. I have my quiet time. I read an open windows book, or I tithe, I give faithfully. Now, all of those are very good things, but like the ark was a very good thing. Those things are not God. See, our assurance must be in a daily, passionate walk in dependence on God. But let me quickly, because I'm way out of time, tell you the third reason why the glory will depart. The glory will depart when hope is lost. The glory will depart when hope is lost. So we go back to Phineas' wife at the end of 1 Samuel 4. Uh, from her perspective, uh, the nation was defeated uh, because the, Isra- the Israelites had just been defeated by the Philistines. There was no hope. The nation had been defeated. God was dead in her eyes. I mean, they, she, she, she believed in God, but she thought now God's been taken captive by the Philistines. So, so the nation's defeated. God is dead and hope is lost because Eli and Phineas are dead. But she was wrong. Listen she was wrong that's why this is this is in the beginning of the bible not the end of the bible right i mean she was she was absolutely wrong now eli and phineas may have been dead but samuel was not dead right and so samuel a a few years later is will anoint david as the next king of israel see israel is not off the map Samuel will anoint David as the next king of Israel. And David will become the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, God in the flesh. See, she thought the hope was gone, but she was wrong. Let me tell you that hope is not gone for the United States of America. When we think about our country, we have problems, all countries have problems, but I don't believe that hope is gone for the United States of America. And we go back to that well-worn but valuable verse in 2 Corinthians seven fourteen. and I think I can show this to you on the screen. If my people who bear my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Now listen, I know this verse was given to different people in a different time for a different purpose, but I believe that the principle holds true today. If God's people, not, not the people who are, who are outside the church, not the people we complain about, not the people on television, but if God's people will humble themselves and confess our sins and seek the Lord, I believe that God will bless a nation that will bring glory and honor to him. I believe that God will bless a nation that will invest its resources in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to the four corners of the world. Against that, God will protect us. Glory, the hope rather, is not gone for our country. Secondly, the hope is not gone for the church. If the church, if our church, will continue to put the purposes of God, listen, if we will continue to put the purposes of God ahead of our own purposes, if we will say the most important thing here is not me, it's what God wants us to do, then I believe the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. And finally, the hope is not gone for you. You know, in this, uh, in this sanctuary today, we, we, we have a lot of people that are in the same place geographically, I mean, we're, you're, you're at the same address But spiritually, people are all over the place, right? There's some of you, you're walking closely to God. There's some of you, you are not at all. But let me tell you that for every person here, the hope is not gone. And God has a path from right where you are. No matter what what spiritual condition your life is in, God has a path from right where you are to right where he is. We've got them. Stop tolerating sin. We've got to put our assurance in our daily walk with the Lord. But God has a plan for us all. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed, I want you to think about this. I want you to pray for our nation that the glory will not depart. I want you to pray for our church that the glory will not depart. But I want you to surrender yourself anew to the Lord so that for you, the glory will not depart. You know, I say this um, reluctantly because I've experienced uh, this, but none of us should be able to say that there was a time in our life when we were more in love with Jesus than we are today. None of us should be able to say that. None of us should be able to say there was a time when I was more passionate about serving the Lord, about giving faithfully, about praying earnestly than today. Because every day we ought to be more in love with Jesus. Listen, if the glory has departed, you, Jesus waits to forgive and to restore, and to draw near, if you will draw near to him. Father, in these moments that we have, may you be honored in our lives, in our church, in our country. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the song.